all of this stuff like agroforestry, regenerative, like it's getting its moment in history in like mainstream media, but Indigenous peoples have been doing this since day one. And so Mm. I hate to say it, we're basically like repackaging things that they have been doing for centuries. I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. You might have noticed that when you're shopping online, you now have the option to offset your purchase with carbon credits. Airlines have been doing this for a few years now, and e-commerce sites are now making it super easy for example, if you choose Shop Pay as your purchasing option, the carbon credits are built right into your purchase. So, quick history lesson. Carbon offsets are not a new idea. The term was first used in the 1970s as part of the Clean Air Act. The first official carbon offset was in 1989 when a coal-fired power plant in Connecticut paid an agroforest in Guatemala to offset its emissions. That's the basic premise, right? Offsetting is like paying off your sins to the carbon gods. You feel bad about emitting carbon, so you pay someone else to plant trees for you. Or to not cut down existing trees. That's the gist. Well, more recent climate agreements like the 2005 EU Emissions Trading Scheme and the 2015 Paris Agreement kicked off what's now a giant global carbon offset market. Today, that market is worth about $270 billion, with a B. Most of that is in mandatory carbon offsets, where governments mandate companies pay for their emissions. But as of this year, $2 billion of that market is in the voluntary sector, which means that companies and individuals willingly pay for their carbon offsets on their own. Now, for companies, this might be part of their ESG programs, or to get ahead of compliance, or simply to boost their brand positioning and look like a climate leader. So why does all that matter? Well, Ariana Day Ewan, the founder of Forested, has figured out how to capture a slice of that giant carbon pie for indigenous communities, starting with food producers in Ethiopia. Forested uses the model of insetting as opposed to offsetting, and you'll learn that insetting is like the Mother Teresa of carbon credits. Ariana is a badass, her team is doing great work, and I think you'll enjoy this episode. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor this week, Sporadic. If you're on Instagram, you've probably heard me wax poetic about this mushroom cocoa. I was a little skeptical trying this because, you know, mushroom products can be a real hit or miss. But this is genuinely good cocoa. It's got a touch of cinnamon and cloves, and it's not too sweet, which I appreciate. It also has lion's mane powder, which studies show has anti-inflammatory effects that can reduce symptoms of anxiety and depression. Very useful for the winter. Now, I don't know if it's the lion's mane or just drinking good cocoa, but this stuff really hits the spot on a cold winter's day. It's also the perfect holiday gift under $20. So I asked Ben, the founder of Sporadic, if he could give us a discount, and he said yes. So gift for you all. Use the code FARM15 for 15% off your order. Go to sporadic.com, that's S-P-O-R-E-A-T-T-I-C.com, and get your mushroom goodies. All right, enjoy the show. Welcome to Farm to Future, Ariana. Thank you, Jane. 
We've had a couple of discussions now about your company, Forested Foods, and the pivots you've had. Tell us about your company, Forested Foods, and what's the mission you're on? So we started Forested about three years, or I guess we've been working on it full-time for three years now. Through all of the pivots, the mission has always remained the same, which is intact biodiverse forests. Everything is about finding ways to make forests, especially around global South markets, starting with East Africa, then moving around the continent to Southeast Asia, but really finding a way to make these forests much more valuable to everyone intact versus destroyed and or degraded. So yeah, doing a few pivots, including a name change from Forested Foods to Forested to kind of broaden our scope of work. But what we're building at Forested is a managed marketplace of ingredient insets. So ingredient insets or ingredient-based insetting is ingredients that can reduce the carbon emissions and other nature impacts based off of the way that they're produced, processed, and ultimately brought to market. What we're doing is connecting rural, fragmented, small, medium enterprises, could be farmer unions, could also be companies that look like forested, at least in its current state of being a B products trading company, um, but bringing them to consumer packaged goods companies like Unilever, L'Oreal, and basically the big multi-conglomerates who absorb a lot of the world's natural ingredients for their products. And in addition to creating these market linkages, we're also building an insetting value calculator where we'll be able to actually quantify the impact that an ingredient value chain has on climate, nature, including you know, land and biodiversity, as well as social justice. Amazing. Okay. So much to unpack there. We will definitely get into insetting because that's a new term for me too. First off, tell us where you're based and how you got so, there. Yeah. So I'm based, our operations are headquartered in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Even though we've been building here full-time for the past three years, I've been here coming up around eight years now. Um, wow. Yeah, so the majority of the team, so 14 of 15 of us are based in Ethiopia. And then one of our colleagues, she leads our international marketing and sales, Krisha, she's based in the US. And you didn't grow up in Ethiopia or like have necessarily ties there, right? I, I always think it's such an interesting story of how you got there. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So from very far away. So I grew up in Hong Kong pretty far removed from anything related to the continent and farming and agriculture. After growing up in Hong Kong, went to the U.S. for uni, studied at Syracuse University for four years, then went into management consulting at Booz Allen Hamilton, did a couple of years at consulting. And then I was always really quite drawn to like impact. And I think at the time was looking at how the corporate social responsibility world was shifting into corporate shared value. I was really interested in like public-private partnerships as well as like private sector-driven impact. And so after a couple of years in consulting, felt like it was time for me to really get my hands dirty in impact. Was completely sector agnostic, had no idea if that would mean like health, education, agriculture. Also had no idea of how my career would look like in terms of you know, what function I would play. And so took short-term leave from Booz Allen Hamilton early 2015 um, and joined an NGO called TechnoServe. They are an international development NGO that is really focused on alleviating poverty by taking a business lens. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of what they do is work with enterprising people, many of whom are smallholder farmers or farmer co-ops and unions, and 
helping them improve their capacity, whether that's related to like business skills or technical agriculture production skills, so they can ultimately better compete in markets and uplift themselves out of poverty. So they had a genius program called the fellowship. Also happy to advertise it because it's amazing. It is a program where they take volunteers who typically have a consulting background or banking background or just any general business background. And we basically do these incredible projects to build and strengthen supply chains that work more in favor of people on the planet pro bono. So moved to Ethiopia with them, had never touched foot on the African continent before then, and got to work across tons of different value chains like coffee, malt barley with, you know, the likes of Mm. Nespresso and Diageo. And really from there on out, it was just kind of this snowball effect of getting so much exposure to a lot of issues that kind of keep people in poverty and, and don't help us build food systems that work more in favor of the planet. And so kind of through that process of being super exposed through TechnoServe's work across multiple regions in Ethiopia, lots of different value chains, Forested kind of emerged as a part of that very organic process of learning and ruminating over different business ideas that could you know, solve some of these issues. And yeah, it's just like a very, very inspiring time my first three years in Ethiopia working with TechnoServe. What a cool initiative, especially when you think of social impact businesses. I tried to start a startup around social impact and education as well. And one of the things we struggled with was business model because you're starting out with a mission, but that doesn't always line up with a budget line item, especially when you're working with government. And so we spent several years just iterating on business model and trying to figure out, okay, who's going to actually pay for this impact? Totally. No, you no, you bring up a really good point. Some of the more typical models of entrepreneurship we see where people see a clear market opportunity or they're like obsessed with a product and it's like product first. It, it's just a lot more straightforward. Always challenges with entrepreneurship. But I think when you are working towards some crazy ambitious impact goal, like conserving the world's forest around emerging economies and global South tropical forests. It's, there's a lot of iteration. The first few years, the business model to manifest into that mission was very much this like vertically integrated trading company where we worked end to end from forest to international market, training farmers on better conservation-based beekeeping and honey production practices, and then also support the farmers at aggregation to purchase products at harvest. We then truck it to our facility. We have a small factory set up in Addis Ababa. I mean, really the goal is to do as little processing as possible because the best quality honey really does require the least amount of processing. Um, But we do things like separating the crude honey into filtered honey and crude beeswax, filtering that, packing it into whatever format our clients want, and then ultimately bringing that to market, both exporting as well as selling in the local market in Ethiopia. So going into the future, this goes beyond bee products. Really anything that grows in a forest is is on our radar. So bee products, spices, gums, resins, like frankincense, gum arabica, even rubber for like Nike, really the list goes on and on. I mean, you can basically grow anything in a forest. (laughs) We had this idea that we would be the Cargill for deforestation-free pro-forest ingredients. Basically Cargill for good. (laughs) Um, (laughs) As in like, in terms of scale? 
Yeah, in terms of scale, we thought that we were going to get to this crazy scale of conservation. And so just over the past few months, realized that I don't actually think in this world of agricultural production and trade that you alone can kind of get to that crazy scale and and still manage to conserve and restore ecosystems. I think there's a lot of interesting conversations happening right now about the crazy growth that underpins basic principles of capitalism. And I think we have to just be really weary about like, where is the balance of growth, but maintaining the integrity of things that can't scale that large, like regenerative systems. Over the past few months, we've been making this pivot from saying like, we're the Cargill of forest-friendly ingredients to actually being a managed marketplace, dare I say, like the Amazon of conservation-based ingredients, we realized that the best conservation work really happens at, at much smaller scales. It's community-led. You are working with indigenous forest communities. You are honoring their practices for forest-based agriculture production. You're processing things in ways that are not optimizing the cost versus output of production using renewables. And thank God the cost of renewables is getting cheaper by the day. And how do we kind of scale up regenerative? The answer for us was not to actually become like this giant mammoth of a trading company, but to actually play to our strengths, which is really rooted in understanding these two crazy different worlds of like indigenous forest communities and the, what it, might be like to sit in these like big corporate teams across like climate and sourcing and and really try and find win-win supplier-buyer relationships between these two different worlds. We not only want to help small medium enterprises that work with forest communities be able to sell their products at premium prices, but get them access to eco credits. Everyone, at least in like the food and sustainability space, has their eye on carbon markets and um, just how crazy the demand for carbon credits are in the voluntary market. And we want to help forest communities get a piece of that and not just a piece of that, but like the large majority of value that they can from carbon markets. I have a lot of hesitation about the integrity of this system overall, but I think if the market demands carbon credits, any opportunity we can get to kind of funnel more of that value to forest communities who we need to incentivize to continue protecting the forest for all of us, like we're, we'll be doing that. And then on the buyer side of our marketplace with corporations, starting with cosmetics, we're helping them secure their raw materials and ingredient supply chains, help them get access to carbon credits, starting with conservation related credits. And then we're also going to be able to kind of give them new avenues where they can connect more directly with their producers at origin. We realize that there's actually a lot of brand value that they could be generating by being able to tell the stories of the communities at origin who are really the engine behind developing their incredible CPG products. So if I'm understanding correctly, Forested is playing kind of this middle role between smallholder producers in Ethiopia, let's say foraging for the ingredients and the global big corporate CPG brands. So I have a simple question. Uh, what's stopping someone like Nike from coming in and taking that forest and taking it all down and putting up a rubber plantation? A lot of these companies, nature-based industries or companies where their core products rely on nature, 
So we've got cosmetics, you know, food and beverage brands, obviously big ag, like the ABCDs of commodity trade, even pharmaceuticals. A lot of retail drugs are utilizing ingredients specifically from forests. I tell people this fun fact all the time, but aspirin is very much inspired from the willow tree. The good news is that all of these companies who rely on nature are starting, if not have already done a lot of economic analysis of the risks that their supply chains would be in if they lost access to these ingredients, like obvious ingredients they rely on, like, you know, rubber for Nike or like cotton for H&M. I think they've already started to make headway in looking at how they can source from or help build like regenerative, say like rubber supply chains. We're just at the early stages of companies really investing in cleaning up their supply chains. I think the traditional modalities of agriculture, which are focused on like commercial scale monoculture plantations, we see that those systems help us maximize output in the short term, call it five to 10 years. But if a company wants to think about how it can be resilient and timeless over decades, current models of agriculture will show you that they're actually kind of shooting themselves in the foot. Do you have criteria for what brands you're looking to sell to you. You have mentioned some pretty big brands like Nike, H&M, Lush, although their branding is known to be a lot more eco-conscious. Do you sort of prioritize working with brands who are aligned with conservation or is it sort of like whoever we work with, we add value to their brand? I would say in the huge market opportunity of nature-based companies. Right now, we're a little bit more focused on cosmetics brands. We realize that there's an opportunity for us to get the unit economics right because a lot of products are kind of centered around this like hero ingredient, meaning that the product itself really brands that one ingredient as like the differentiating factor. Brands are more willing to pay a premium for that ingredient. And the reality is, is like building regenerative systems and working with a fragmented supply of smallholder farmers is going to be more cost intensive, especially in the beginning. And so we do need to be working with buyers who actually have an increased value for that ingredient. Based off of the unit economics of cosmetics, CPG brands versus like food and beverage, CPG brands, we think that cosmetics industry can kind of be our champion to get regenerative ingredient production and distribution to scale so that we can ultimately become more cost competitive, even though I am an optimist, for us to really build a model that can scale, we have to find a way to make our ingredients as close to, if not less than the conventional or commodity option. While that sounds impossible, the innovation that we're bringing to market is really marrying the market demand for eco-credits, starting with carbon by giving these CPG partners access to very high in demand carbon credits, we can ultimately drastically lower the cost of our ingredients. The way we're thinking about it right now is similar to giving clients like volume-based discounts. Like for every sea freight container of honey you buy, you get, you know, an incremental like 15 to 20% volume-based discount. So when we think about insetting, with every container of honey or forest-based ingredient they purchase, they'll get incremental increases in bundles of carbon credits. The idea is that when they purchase ingredients that are 
better for people on the planet. We'll reward them with carbon credits, which they actually have budgets for. And so even if they might be paying 15 to 30% more in premiums for forest-friendly ingredients, the amount of carbon credits that they'll be able to access will actually present a very cost-compelling opportunity. What are these brands doing with the carbon credits? Well, really, really the most ambitious companies who are genuinely trying to work towards like net zero goals, they are playing in like the carbon offsets market to help them decrease their footprint. Even though I was actually skeptical about how much impact the carbon offsets market can really have in terms of really helping us transition our land use to being sustainable, there are always going to be parts of your business operation where you really can't avoid emitting carbon, at least at this point, like business travel or like hosting your data centers. And so it's those parts of a business that you should be offsetting. But insetting as opposed to offsetting is when companies are investing in reducing their carbon emissions through their own supply chains. And that's why insetting is is really just the future for any of these nature-based companies. We really see insetting as the future mandatory complement, or actually really offsetting is a complement to insetting. So offsetting, someone called this, a previous guest on the podcast called this like paying indulgences to the Catholic church. <laughs> it's like you go do something bad and then you pay it off. Atonement, um, yes. Yeah, yeah, atonement, exactly. Whereas insetting is embedding more sustainable practices within your supply chain, which makes a lot more sense. But like you said, is like way more applicable for companies that are sourcing these types of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, offsetting is like you're basically paying someone else normally like far away to like atone for your carbon sins. And like, you can really only do that so long. Right. And I think what we're also seeing is like, it's very, very expensive and the cost of credits are growing immensely because there's such a deficit in supply. Mm-hmm. And we want to capitalize on that by making sure that our forest communities and other partners can start originating these carbon credit projects and marrying them to the value of their conservation ingredient production. I'm curious on both sides of who you work with, the producers and the brands, like how familiar are folks with the concept of insetting? I'm I'm assuming like more so on the corporate side. Totally. So we are really trying to push this concept of insetting. It's it's not rocket science. And when you actually break down what insetting is, it's also not new. I think it's just the way that we're talking about ingredients as the core insetting solution. The term has been around for maybe around like a decade or so, and and definitely hats off to a few organizations have really been pioneering this like Pure Projet, other like nature-based solution providers. There are a few corporations that are kind of like early adopters in this, but it's all super new right now. It's definitely increasingly on companies' radars. We are also in a very, very dynamic time in the ESG space where we are still waiting on guidelines from some of the leading bodies setting science-based targets and protocols to roll out. We're kind of in limbo right now where a lot of corporations are like, okay, we know we have to invest in in setting and better goal setting in terms of like science-based targets for climate and nature. But like, let's wait for these bodies to like roll them out. Notably, the next like six to nine months, we'll see some of that. And then we'll see probably corporations scrambling. Definitely a few corporations that are leading the pack. And they were like, you know what? This is the future anyway. And like Mm. Lush is definitely one of those. And I wish the world had more versions of Lush who 
are not so tied up in revising the way that they work based off of like regulations and mitigating regulator risk and are just like, we just need to do this for the planet and people and we don't have time. Let's just get acting. And even if guidelines will require us to tweak a few of our practices, taking action now is irreplaceably better than like waiting until guidelines come out. Obviously, super, super, super big fan of Lush. And I think our team having like talked with them and worked with them over the past couple of years have just been so in admiration, inspired and hopeful really Mm. to find a company at the scale that they are who truly walks their talk in supporting regenerative systems. I so Lush is headquartered in Vancouver, Canada, my hometown, and I actually got to visit their factory and Very like tour cool. their facilities. Yeah, it was so cool. And we like made a couple bath bombs. It was like a play place because everything's like so colorful and so fragrant. Super fun spot. And I'm 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 excited for them. I remember the first few Lush stores opening up in Hong Kong when I was a teenager, but I would say like everything that was so true to their values when they first launched, it definitely resonates so much with the current generation, especially like Gen Z. So yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm very excited for their trajectory of growth. So where are you guys at in terms of supply? Like, are you sitting with like vats of honey ready to go for a bunch of suppliers? Do you have like other ingredients that are ready? Or are you still kind of working on building up that supply chain while you're working on the demand end? Totally. So I guess Forested Ethiopia, we have honey and beeswax in our immediate portfolio, and we have a few varieties of indigenous tree honeys. I've actually had to hold myself back from building our own supply chains more. For me, like that's the really fun stuff. And I think my strange secret sauce as a founder is knowing how to identify, help build capacity of and aggregate rural fragmented suppliers across markets like Ethiopia. But at the end of the day, for better or worse, like the market trumps all and who buys. And so we have kind of put some of our supply chain building on hold to really establish these partnerships with enlightened CPGs who who want to do something really exciting in the regen ag and, and system space. That being said, we have identified a few partners that we'd love to like work with. We've kind of built like a pipeline of honey and bee products from other areas of East Africa, like Kenya. Also shea, cocoa, coffee, frankincense, gum arabica, oils, spices. Yeah, lots of different things in the pipeline, but trying super hard to have some sort of self-control and and kind of <laughs> get back to that once we can really solidify some more super awesome buy-side partnerships. I love it. You're you're like the spice girl at the market who's like, what forest <laughs> product do you want? I've got them all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like really the possibilities for forest-based ingredients, it's truly limitless. I mean, even like livestock and, and a few staples that we like don't associate with forests, like they can all be forest ingredients. Like really everything grows better in a forest. Literally the most like biodiverse ecosystems that agricultural products can grow in, the more rich in flavor and nutrients they will be. I feel like agroforestry is so underrated. Like so often we think about the two as mutually exclusive. Like you need to cut down trees in order to plant row crops. Yeah, totally. And like 
agroforestry has so many facets to it. In Ethiopia, we're focusing on foraging within intact forests. But yeah, I'm super excited to see that like agroforestry is getting its time in history. When we started thinking about forested back in 2016, 2017, I think there was like a super tiny coalition of people who was super nerdy about it. And I would say it's starting to become mainstream because of players who have been pioneering this space. I do hate to say pioneering because I think what we're also trying to do at Forested is really elevate the voices and practices and wisdom of indigenous peoples because mm. you know, all of this stuff like agroforestry, regenerative, like it's getting its moment in history in like mainstream media, but indigenous peoples have been doing this since day one. And so mm. I hate to say it, we're basically like repackaging things that they have been doing for centuries. But that's needed, right? To translate what they're doing into the corporate Western world. Totally, totally. Mm -hmm. And so I think one thing that we would love to do more and more is try and like elevate their voices because they did it first, quite frankly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I would love to get one of your indigenous producers on the show. That'd be so cool. Yeah, for sure. One last technical question is like, going back to the carbon credits piece, how do you guys, how do you guys measure your impact? We're actually just about to launch our first carbon credit project. I would say in the carbon credits markets, even there, there's a lot of like hoo-ha right now about like the quality of them. The methodologies to actually originate a high quality carbon credit project are pretty clear. So there's all different types of carbon credit projects. The methodologies that we're looking at are specific to conservation or like avoided emissions. We will have to work with a third party auditing body, kind of like Vera or Plan Vivo. And then we'll get certificates for our carbon credits and basically pair that with ingredient supply. I'm excited to kind of like play off of like this opportunity of carbon credits to really elevate and nudge corporates to start sourcing regenerative. Just want to say I'm super impressed with what you've built so far and what y'all are up to. I guess looking back on your career so far and like what you've built with Forested, are you happy you took the leap and kind of started something on your own? So definitely grateful that I'm here. I think having talked to a few other entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs, I realized that my motivation behind entrepreneurship is not like the most common one. I never wanted to start a business because I wanted to be my own boss. I think that's one thing I hear from entrepreneurs is like they really wanted to work for themselves or they're tired of working for other people. I had loved working for people. I actually, <laughs> I mean, yes, every boss wasn't perfect, but like I really, really enjoyed the parts of my career where I was working for these incredible managers who taught me so much about just how to be more effective and how to like lead better. And, and I actually really missed that. Mm. Like, I literally cannot wait for the day where Forested is big enough where we can hire some baller CEO and like I can work for them. Um, I would say I am very much building Forested because I saw a gap in the market and realized that nature has so much value. And I actually think we're losing a lot of money by not protecting it. And like, why is no one doing this? And so I am motivated by this very clear mission that we need to conserve forests and that we can make a lot of money by doing that. I am very glad that we're doing this because quite frankly, the work just needs to get done. But there are a lot of things about not being an entrepreneur I really miss. It's obviously very hard. I think the type of work that Forested does really hard. And one thing that's been extra hard is like pitching a few investors because we we're raising our first institutional round and kind of realizing literally on the train yesterday, like, wait, investors don't actually want to know that you're 
doing really hard things. They want to know that you're doing things that are hard in the sense that there's a high barrier to entry, but it's mm. easy for you because you have this like irreplaceable competitive edge. Yes, it's really hard. <laughs> and and I think especially when you are in the physical economy in a world where like there's so much value being created from software and like the non-tangible economy, it is really really hard. But what I do to kind of, I guess, soothe myself is, you know, I take a step back and be like, wow, like I literally have my dream job and like who gets mm. to do that? Like who gets to have their dream job and wake up every day and work on something that no matter how hard it is, it is like the single most important thing you think that we need to be doing in this world. So I think that's definitely what keeps me motivated and literally can't wait until Forested kind of outgrows me. You know, even though I'll always play a role in Forrested's growth, I just can't wait until we're at a place where we can bring in a CEO who can take us to like the next level and I can continue working in a Forrested like innovation lab. Oh, I love that. You'll still be an, a baller exec and founder. <laughs> Literally I'm trying to work my way into middle management. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's very self-aware. You know, you know what you're good at. You know where you work best. And I think that's like kind of rare for a founder. <laughs> <laughs> Are consumers going to see like a forested logo on, you know, less lush products or something like that? Like what can we look out for? Yeah, no, I know. I think like a few people have been like, is Forrested going to become like a certification? And mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe, probably not. I'm like, about the certification world. But I would say we are currently doing a rebrand. We will probably focus most of our efforts on B2B or like wholesale ingredients. That being said, we will have a direct to consumer brand in kind of like limited quantities available internationally. They can come to Ethiopia. We are definitely selling retail in Ethiopia, but we will do limited quantities of direct to consumer, mostly to kind of push our mission, probably end of next year. So a year from now, one thing that we're trying to work on with our buyers is to make sure that they are really benefiting from the stories that are happening on the ground. We'll be really, really using like our own efforts and stories to really empower the brands that are sourcing regenerative, like anything we can do to like reward them and you know, support them in the big shifts that they're moving that are pretty hard in, in these like big global companies to source regenerative. Like we want to help them elevate their stories also. We are really excited about the education that we can push out through LinkedIn. Our Instagram's a little dead, but if anyone wants to follow it, it's at forested.co. But I think right now we're like pretty psyched about LinkedIn and it seems like a platform where we can share a lot more about the science and like community work around Forested. Cool. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm excited to see how Forested grows and see you all take over the marketplace. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for having us. And super excited to hear all the other stories that you're elevating through your platform as well. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember to nourish your body and I'll talk to you next time.